It was a beautiful day in Hawaii. My in-laws were celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary, and they had decided what they wanted more than anything was to celebrate this momentous occasion with their family members. After all, they were grateful to God for the years of marriage that had created generations of people they loved so much. So my in-laws generously offered their three adult children and their families to go to Maui all together at the same time because Hawaii was a place that had so many good memories for them. And I have a picture here of my two boys with a couple of their cousins a couple years prior to that trip. This Hawaii trip was going to mean some special time for them with their cousins. And whenever the four of these guys, so close in age and stage, got together, things got competitive. They were always trying to figure out how to use their wit and grit to get ahead while dreaming up their new shenanigans. <laughs> and sometimes they even used their individual powers towards a common goal. This Hawaii trip was no exception to that. Let me explain. Every time we went to Hawaii, we would wake up early in the morning and all the family members would join on the beach and head out for a beautiful swim. We would go to the coral reefs and identify fish and eels and turtles, whatever we saw that day. We'd take pictures of what we found. This particular day, I'm remembering the waves had picked up a bit, so it took more energy to push our ways through the water. And so my Boys and their cousins stayed on the beach, and all the adults went for a swim. The older cousins were watching the younger ones, and then the rest of us, the grandparents, the aunts and uncles, the moms and dads, we all went swimming. And I periodically peered over the edge of the water to look, even if the shore was getting farther and farther away, to make sure that my boys and the cousins were still playing well. But I noticed, one by one, each adult decided the water was too choppy. So they were heading in and calling it quits. And I remember thinking to myself, nah, I'm not going in. I, I probably hadn't gotten enough exercise that day, and so I wanted to swim longer. I wanted to be the last one in from that time snorkeling. And what I didn't know was that each family member coming to the shore, taking off their flippers and their goggles, were greeted by four cheeky boys with very suspicious grins, who chimed in unison, please, sit on this nice towel, and, and it'll be comfortable here. You know, something completely unsuspicious. And each of the family members, I found out, let the boys know they were not going to sit on that nice towel because they could spot that trick a mile away. They could see this was a sneaky plan because that towel had been painstakingly placed over a big hole. They had been digging all morning long. But each family member decided they could give a tip to the boys in turn on something they could do to make that trick less suspicious for the next family member coming to the beach. And so this happened for the grandparents and the aunts and the uncles and the moms and the dads. But you might remember 
I had decided I was going to be the last one snorkeling and swimming that day, and I didn't realize that the prize I would receive for all my hard work was a trick that was getting trickier by the minute. <laughs> and so by the time I got to the shore, I took off my flippers and took off my goggles, and all I saw was the towels lined up the way they had been every day on that trip. And there weren't four boys suspiciously directing me. No, they were playing in the sand. They were enjoying themselves. And my younger son had gotten a bit more creative. He said to me, Mom, I have this terrible pain in my tooth. I, I need you to come look at it and tell me why it hurts so bad. Just sit here. <laughs> and... We all know, well, any of you, if you know me at all, know that he was calling on my nurture. And he had done it. He had found the plan that would not fail. I was going to sit next to my beloved boy and see what thoughtful attention he needed. <laughs> or so I thought. This is a picture of that next moment <laughs> when I sat on that nice towel and fell in a not-so-nice hole. <laughs> what you can't see is that my left arm actually fell in with me, so it is pinned completely by my side. I can't get out of the hole without considerable help from those nice family members who let me fall in. And you can see my two boys, my older son, Graydon, in the orange, and my younger son, Abram, in the red. Abram has an especially proud smile, because after all, it was his trick that had worked. <laughs> you see, Abram knew the nature of his mom's nurture. He knew that day that plan would not fail. And everybody on the beach knew it, too. We're talking today, we're continuing our sermon series on a frustrated life. And we've been looking at the journey of Jonah as he's been running away from God. Now, this story is both laughable and filled with anguish. It's laughable because the thing that frustrates Jonah most of all is the unfailing love of his God. <laughs> That's a strange thing to be frustrated by. And in John chapter four, we see him get so frustrated that God's mercy shows up again. He says, kill me now. <laughs> He's not happy. He's angry. And Jonah has been on a journey. In these recent weeks, we've traveled with him as he ran away from God to the far coast of Spain and Tarshish. He didn't want to go to Nineveh, as God called him to. He's ended up in the depths of the sea, thrown off a faraway ship. He's landed in the belly of a whale, and he's been spit out on dry ground. He has hit rock bottom. And after all of this, God offers him mercy. He's benefited from this gift of compassion. He knows the nature of God's nurture. He is a forgiven man, but he's also a man with wounds. And he begrudgingly decides to obey God and to warn the people of Nineveh that if they don't change their ways, they will be overturned. But then the unthinkable happens. They change their ways. <laughs> he's incredulous. He, 
It's as if you can hear him say, you mean your compassion is for them too? (laughs) He's not happy. Let's turn to John or Jonah chapter four and read what happens next. When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city. He made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to that city. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there. And soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun, and this eased his discomfort. And Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm, and the next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem and the plant so that it withered away, and as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah, and the sun beat down on his head until he grew faint, and he wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. And then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and it died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? Jonah is a reluctant prophet. (laughs) And he has good reason to feel resentful. Excuse me. You see, the people of Nineveh are connected to his people's wounds. There is artwork we've discovered that shows some of the terrible atrocities that the Ninevites did to the men of Judah. The Assyrian soldiers committed what we would call today war crimes on his people. Jonah is not happy to know that the care that God offers is for them. And the prospect of going to these people connects him to the very things he's been running away from for a long time, his grief, his anger, his resentment. If he can just keep them as his enemies, if he can hold on to his anger and armor up, then it'll be all right. Alternatively, if he can find a spot to run away to where he can watch God have these people reach their demise, maybe, maybe that will help squelch the fire that burns in his gut. Jonah's been holding on to dead things for a long time. 
But then God's mercy, that compassion and care, it shows up again. And it runs the risk of turning everything upside down. You see, if his enemies become people that God redeems and loves, well, that changes everything. That's messing with something he really resents. And now, who is it that Jonah resents most of all? Jonah resents God. Jonah resents God most of all. Have you ever experienced a kind of resentment or hurt that you've held on to for so long? It kind of feels like it's just part of the geography of your life. I'm talking about the kind of hurt that feels a little bit like it teaches you about gravity. What weighs up and what weighs down? When we experience hurt in our lives, sometimes it makes us look at the world and the people in it differently. Like, who can be trusted and who can't? And who can be forgiven and who isn't worth my forgiveness? Grief can be like that. And when we experience this hurt, it is complex. I've been reading recently a book by Brené Brown. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Atlas of the Heart, Mapping Meaningful Connections and the Language of Human Experience. Uh, Brené is a researcher, storyteller, and many of you may know she has explored the themes of empathy and courage and shame and and dignity and vulnerability. And in this latest book, I'd heard about it for some time, it's quite powerful. She really paints a picture of the geography of the 80 plus complex emotions that the people she interviewed talked about in their lives. She poignantly explores things like betrayal and rejection, humiliation and loneliness, powerful. And then she explores the depths of joy and calm and relief and belonging. And when she explores resentment, she says, while resentment is an emotion I normally recognize by a familiar pattern, what mean and critical thing am I rehearsing saying to this person? She goes on to say this, Resentment is the feeling of frustration, judgment, anger, better than, or hidden envy related to perceived unfairness or injustice. It's an emotion we often experience when we fail to set boundaries or ask for what we need, or when expectations let us down because they were based on things we can't control, like what other people think and what they feel or how they're going to react. Brené goes on to mention another emotion that is sometimes paired with resentment. It's a German word, and she explains that in the German language, some of you may have heard it, schadenfreude describes the kind of delight that we might take when we see someone struggling. It's not a very nice <laughs> behavior, but she gives some Lighthearted examples, and I want to share a couple of them with you. Maybe imagine yourself in traffic, and there's a car that's been riding the tail of your car for a really long time. You know how that feels? 
and you start to feel frustrated and it just doesn't stop and it's driving through traffic, but it's driving you crazy. And then a little bit later, that car gets pulled over by the police and gets a speeding ticket. How does that feel? What happens in you? Hmm, justice. Or maybe imagine yourself on your summer travels on an airplane and a small child sitting behind you and that child is screaming and kicking your chair. And after a while, a long while, that child slips out of his chair and he gets in trouble with his parent. How do you feel? Schadenfreude can happen with complete strangers. It can also happen in our homes with people we're very close to. Left to go to its extreme, it could end up making us delight when we see whole communities struggle or people groups have hardship. Brené says it this way, schadenfreude is a compound of the German words schaden, meaning harm, and freude, meaning joy. Schadenfreude. And the world is full of it these days. The German language is known for accurately capturing nuanced emotions, often with combining words that make the meaning very clear. In this case, it simply means pleasure or joy derived from someone else's suffering or misfortune. And when Jonah doesn't get the joy of seeing the people he has resented suffer, He is crazy with resentment. He calls it quits. Jonah wants to choose death instead. Remember how in verse two through three, Jonah says, didn't I say before I left home you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are merciful and compassionate, God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. What does Jonah want most of all? Jonah wants to be right. Jonah's whole identity is wrapped up in his predictions and his expectations for what is supposed to happen next. And if Jonah can't blame the people he's been angry with for a lifetime, he'll do the next best thing. He'll resent God himself. Jonah wants to be able to direct where God's love goes. A little bit like that whole that my boys dug on the beach. (laughs) When we want to play games with God in our hurt, we might be a little bit like that. Like we wanna make God's next actions a pawn on the game boards of our lives or like a loving mother on the beach. (laughs) If we can just direct it, then we can use God's actions to get back at the one who's hurt us or to make things right, pay them back, and fall into that hole we've dug while no one was looking. We may, in our hurt, decide that we want the right to demand God's mercy for ourselves and the right to withhold God's mercy from those we deem undeserving of it. And with time, we may find ourselves in a victim mentality. 
may be easier to be stuck. And a victim always needs, requires a villain. If God is messing with that equation, it turns everything on its head. We're powerless to be able to forgive and receive God's mercy in those parts of our story. We need God to change us. And God is always ready to do that, to change our stories. The question is, are we ready? Are we ready? Jonah chapter four reminds us, God is never just a supporting actor in our plans. You see, in our hurt, when we're trying to take control, we make ourselves the protagonist and everybody else is the supporting actors in our plans. But that's not how God works. God is always the central player, bringing his mercy to our stories and to the world. The question is, what's God willing to use in our story to awaken us to the healing he wants to do next? We can read in Jonah chapter four and see what supporting actors God has in Jonah's story. A worm, a weed, and a wind. God brings about this worm and a weed. Jonah has fled to the hills. He's gone to the east side of the city. He saw that God was gonna do a new thing for Nineveh and he was out of there. (laughs) He wanted to not be close to that healing work God was gonna do next. He was licking his wounds. But then a plant grows overhead and he starts to feel comfort. It's almost like the first time in the passage we can almost hear him sighing with relief. Ah, this feels good on my terms. I've ran to this far off place and this feels just right, yeah. And then a worm appears and it eats its way through the plant And then something really interesting happens. I confess, as I've been studying this chapter, I saw something I never saw before. You see, Jonah has been feeling anger and he has been armored up and he's been running away from his grief for a long time. But now that he loses his plant, (laughs) what do we see? He's put his hope and his trust in something else other than God's way. And when he loses that plant, he starts to feel things. He feels the wind. He feels the scorching heat. And instead of anger, he feels overwhelming grief. It must be so shocking to him. It's like his armor just falls off. (laughs) And it must be surprising because after all, it's just a plant. But that's kind of the way grief is in our lives. Have you ever experienced this? When something small happens, but it was something you were just letting yourself count on, and it gets changed and you didn't see it coming, you can just feel the wire get tripped. (laughs) And suddenly it's carrying all the weight of how hurt you are. You might find yourself thinking, if that person cared at all, they wouldn't do that. (laughs) A deeper hurt is probably underneath that. Or you might find yourself pleading or praying with God, Lord, this isn't fair, I let my guard down. I didn't see that coming. Just let me have this small thing. And maybe you've been a bit far away from God and you've been relying on something that was 
not what he wanted you to trust in. And when it's gone, suddenly you feel hurt and resentment. But God wants us to courageously, courageously trust our lives to him, his unfailing love, his inexplicable mercy, his never-ending compassion that does not quit on us. God's love compels us to face our wounds with courage and compassion. Let me say that again. God's love compels us to face our wounds with courage and compassion. That's why God is letting him know he has enough room to care and offer compassion to all the people of Nineveh because God's love is big enough for all of the Ninevites and for all of Jonah too, even his resentment and unforgiveness. And God's compassion and care is big enough for all of us too and all of us even the wounds and the parts we keep down. But God is daring Jonah to let go of the plant, to let go of dead things, to let go of his expectations, his predictions, all of his, but God, you have tos. All the things he's tempted to put his trust in instead of God. And God's asking us to trust him too to trust him with the things we think he has to do. But the book leaves us all really open-ended. We're left not knowing what Jonah says next. I mean, what's he gonna do? Is he gonna do it? Is he gonna entrust this part of his life and choose the way of compassion? And it's like that awkward silence is for us too. Are you gonna do it? Am I gonna do it? Are we doing this thing? Are we trusting God with those deeper wounds? Friends, what dead things are you holding on to today? What small things have tripped that wire this week or this year and reminded you that you have a bigger hurt, a wound that you can entrust in the hands of Christ? Christ shows us this courageous new way. The Spirit makes it possible for us to discover healing. But we don't discover this in the far-off places we run to. We discover it together, rooted in community. Henry Nouwen, profound author and priest, wrote in his book, Compassion, a Reflection on the Christian Life. The word compassion is derived from the Latin words pati and cum, which together means to suffer with. Compassion asks us to go where it hurts, to enter the places of pain, to share in the brokenness and the fear and the confusion and anguish. Compassion challenges us to cry out with those in misery, to mourn with those who are lonely, to weep with those in tears. Compassion requires us to be weak with the weak, to be vulnerable with the vulnerable, and powerless with the powerless. Compassion means full immersion in the condition of being human. (sighs) Any of you hungry for a less demanding way? (laughs) 
Me too. That sounds risky. That sounds like a risky way to live, but it does sound a whole lot like Jesus. We read in Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life. And when he raised Christ from the dead, it is only by God's grace that you have been saved. So friends, let me ask you, what dead things are you holding on to? Where has your grief and anger taken you when you wanted something no matter the cost? Or when you didn't get what you needed? Have you encountered a worm, a wind, or a weed in your story? Something unexpected? What if trusting God means letting go of control for where God's going to work next in you or in someone else? What if we stopped waiting for things to be fair before we trusted our healing in God's hands? I want to leave you with this story. I read this week about a young girl named Helen. She was born in Poland in 1905, and she was a young Catholic girl. As she grew up, she loved the Lord so much, she started to feel called to give her life to service to the church and to the Lord. And her family thought she was humble and sweet and really rejected this notion of her giving her life to service. But when she came of age, she joined a convent with sisters and she changed her name to St. Maria Faustina. And even her sisters there thought she was pretty commonplace. But day after day, she wrote pages in her diary about how the Spirit was drawing her to the Lord and the way that God instructed her and gave her courage. And even through terrible sicknesses and hard things in her life, she continued to draw close to Jesus. And she passed away at the young age of 33 from tuberculosis. But her diary was found after she passed away. And in it, she had written reflections about choosing mercy over resentment. And I'd like to end with these four things we can dare to do together with the Spirit's help. She wrote about practicing constant prayer. You see, if we practice constant prayer, then even when we are angry and someone has let us down, We fight the urge to be far away in our thoughts from God and from anything good and beautiful. And instead, again and again, we turn to gratefulness for small things, sunshine, for a kind word spoken over us by a good friend. And it draws us to Jesus so we can practice constant prayer. She also wrote about discovering the beauty of humility. In her life, she was often overlooked and dismissed and misunderstood. This could definitely be the recipe for being very angry. But instead, in each of those struggles, she wrote in her diary the ways that she was being drawn to Christ. Let down by somebody, drawn to Christ. Disappointed, drawn to Christ. And we too can discover the beauty of humility so that we would prayer a prayer like this. We would say, 
God, this didn't happen the way I expected or predicted. Teach me to humbly be near to you. Help me to trust your plan above my own expectations. Three, we can confess the need for mercy. You see, when we're angry, it's very easy to blame and shame somebody else. (laughs) We start to only notice their flaws. Am I the only one? And in that heartbreak and disappointment, we need to remember that we need God's mercy too. When she wrote about it in her diary, she said, in my own interior life, I'm looking with one eye to my misery, or what she needs to confess, and with the other eye to your mercy, oh God. It helped her to confess this. I love what a Russian philosopher is known for saying when he said, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. So every one of us can confess our need for God's mercy. And four, remember to let ourselves suffer with others. And this is this Jesus way where we let the hurt that others experience penetrate our hearts and it moves us from judgment to intercessory prayer. So we would say, teach me, Lord, to pray for the very one who has let me down. Teach me to pray so that rather than separating myself from God, I would be able to experience your mercy, Lord, for all of us and for all of us. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that your mercy is for all of us. And we confess, Lord, that in our hurt, it's so easy to run away to far off places. But Lord, I pray that you would continue to teach us to discover your beauty, to confess our own needs, and to enter into others' suffering with your power, Lord. Amen.